The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Um, you know, I was listening to somebody this week. I, I don't know what prompted me to click on it, but his name is N.T. Wright, and uh, he believes that the church has replaced Israel. N.T. Wright is wrong. Okay. Um, we are in Judges 3, 24 through 31. This is entitled Ehud, Judge of Israel, Part 2. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Seirah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab. All stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Many years ago, I heard that there are so many laws in the federal government of the United States that all one has to do is exist here to be guilty of breaking one law or another. The system is set up for its citizens to fail. For those who consider not playing along with whoever is in power, that may actually be used against you. If that was 40 years ago, considering how many laws have been passed since then, just imagine how many laws we are breaking at any given moment without even realizing it in the present time. And that is only federal laws. We have state and local laws bearing down on us as well. But this is not supposed to be the case with the giving of law. Those who naturally do what is right should not be subject to laws that make them guilty when they're not doing anything wrong. Paul takes the time to explain this to Timothy, and his words reveal to us reasons for law which they should be given. Our text verse comes from 1 Timothy 1, it is verses 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Establishing laws against such things as Paul presents here is sound and reasonable. In the Bible, the giving of the law has several purposes, some of which we will see as we analyze things today. The problem with God giving us law, however, is not in the law itself or in him. Rather, the problem rests within us. Adam was given a law, 
but he had no experiential knowledge of what the consequences of violating that law would be. He was told what they would be, but without the experiential knowledge, he could not understand what he was told. This was not because of a defect in Adam. Rather, Adam's lack of knowledge was simply a limitation that he was expected to deal with after being told what not to do. He didn't obey, and sin entered the world. The law stands as an enemy against us when we do not comply with it. That is just how it is. Unfortunately, being in a land where you wake up guilty before the law means that you are an enemy of the lawgiver at all times. This is how it is in the United States, and it is how the world is before God. Because of sin, which resulted from failing to observe the law, the whole world stands guilty already. That is our default position. And without someone to remove that guilt, along with the burden of the law, we will remain forever condemned. Enter Jesus. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, and Ehud escaped. It's verses 24 through 31. Verse 24, when he had gone out. Rather, it simply and emphatically states, Vehu Yatsa, and he went out. Ehud had gone through the porch, the Mistrona in the previous verse, shutting the doors of the loft behind him and locking them. With his safe exit from the main building, it next says, verse 24 continues, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise. The words are sequentially stated, Va'adav ba'u va'iru vehine, and his servants come in, and look, and behold, taken together with the previous clause, the sequential nature is more prominent. And he went out, and his servants come in, and look, and behold, each and is given to elicit excitement at the unfolding events, the next of which is what the servants saw. Verse 24 continues, the doors of the upper room were locked. Daltot ha'aliyah ne'ulot, doors the loft locked. It appears from this that the servants must have known that Ehud had left, otherwise they wouldn't be surprised. But knowing he was gone, they come up to attend to the king, and the door is locked. Therefore, being locked from the inside, they think it must have been Eglon who locked it. This would not be uncommon based on the next words. Verse 24 continues, so they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. The words again bear emphasis. And they said, only covering he feet in chamber of the coolness. It is a euphemism used for the first of just two times in scripture. There are two suggested meanings to it. The first is a later interpretation meaning to take a nap. One lays down and covers his feet when sleeping. Hence, when Ruth went to Boaz at the threshing floor, she uncovered his feet. The second and more likely meaning is clothes covering the feet while relieving oneself. Usually the bare or sandaled feet are uncovered and the rest of the body is covered. But at this time, the opposite is true. An example of this is found in the story of King Saul. It is unlikely, although possible, that Saul went into a cave in 1 Samuel 24 to take a nap. Rather, he surely went in for privacy while relieving himself. It says there, so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Literally there it says he covered his feet. As for the word cheder or chamber, it signifies an inner chamber. In this case, as there is a main room for conducting Eglon's normal affairs, and there is an inner chamber for conducting his discreet affairs. Today, we would simply say, he's in the John. Verse 25, so they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Vayachilu ad bovosh vehine enenu poteach daltot ha'aliyah, and whirled until ashamed, and behold, not he opened doors the loft. The word chul signifies to whirl to dance or to writhe. The sense is that the servants are waiting there, and as people do, they're shaking their heads and shuffling their feet and flailing their arms in a what-the-heck manner. 
At one point, they can no longer be considered blameless for tarrying. And yet, at some point, they cannot be considered blameless for barging in while the king is tending to his business. And so they annoyingly stood around whirling, unable to decide when the right moment to act would be. Verse 25 continues, therefore they took the key and opened them. And took the opener. It is a word found only here and in Isaiah 22, verse 22, mafteach. It comes from patach, to open. Thus it is the opener, the key. Ellicott notes, the ancient key was simply a bar of wood hooked at the end, which passed through a hole in the door and caught the bolt inside. Finally deciding that the action was necessary, they got the spare key and opened the door. Verse 25 continues, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. The words are short and abrupt. Vehine adonehem nofel artsa met. And behold, their lord fallen earthward, died. Eglon had seen better days. Verse 26, but Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Seira. Ve'ehud nimlat ad hit mamhem, ve'hu avar et ha pesalim va'yimlat ha sirata. And Ehud escaped until their tarrying and passed through the carved images and escaped the Se'era ward. The servants tarried, allowing Ehud to escape. He took the route through the carved images, making escape in the direction of Se'ira. Se'ira, or as it's spelled in Hebrew, Se'irat, is found only here. It is derived from a general root, SR, and appears to primarily express intense negative emotion or the experience of violence. Curiously, it also yields words that have to do with hair. That is Abarim's analysis. Though associated with various words, the connotation of hair fits the context. Thus, it means rough, hairy, bristly, or goat because of the goat's bristly hair. As has been explained many times in previous sermons, hair in the Bible signifies an awareness, especially an awareness of sin. Verse 27, And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. Vehi bevovoto vayitka bashofar behar Ephraim. And it was in his coming and blew in the shofar in Mount Ephraim. What may be the case is that the se'arat of the previous verse could be a wooded or brambly area, giving the appearance of hair. When you see a mountain with brambles on it, it looks like it's hairy. Whether a general location or a city, upon his coming to the area, he gave a blast on the shofar in Mount Ephraim to call the people together. This was a signal that was probably pre-planned, just as was the making of the special sword to Nixiglon. At the blowing of the shofar, the people came. As always, a mount or a har is a lot of something gathered. It is synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. Ephraim means twice fruitful, with a secondary meaning of ashes. Verse 27 continues, And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And descended with him sons Israel from the mount and he to their faces, meaning before them. The Israelites followed Ehud as they descended the mount. Verse 28, then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. The plural is mixed with the singular concerning the foe. Vayomer alechem ridpu acharai kinatan Yehovah et oivechem et moav beyedchem. And said to them, pursue after me. Forgave Yehovah your enemies, plural, moab, singular, in your hand. One can see the excitement Ehud must have felt. Pursue after me. He's challenging them to keep up as they rush toward the battle ahead. He had tasted the blood of Eglon, and he was ready to meet every lesser foe he encountered. But he gives the credit for the already won battle to the Lord. Jehovah gave into your hand. Verse 28 continues. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. Ish Avar. 
and descended after him and seized fords the Jordan to Moab and gave no man to pass over. The meaning is that despite Moab being east of the Jordan, there were Moabite warriors stationed west of the Jordan, meaning in the land of Canaan. In their advancing, Israel took advantage of the situation and seized the fords of the river so that none of the Moabites could retreat into their own land. John Lang thinks that Eglon was the king over only the western area of Moab. Or it could be that he was king over all of it, but chose to reside in the fair area west of the Jordan, in the area of Jericho. Either way, verse 29, and at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab. Vayaku et Moab ba'et hahi ka'aseret alapim ish, and struck Moab in the time the it according to 10,000 men. There's no reason to assume the number is off by much, as in about. I don't like that they inserted that word into the New King James Version. As these were warriors of Moab, they would be stationed according to the units across the Jordan, probably rotating on a regular basis. Therefore, there were probably just 10,000, according to the standard calculation, like any military force. 10,000 is simply a derivative of 10. Therefore, if the number has typological significance, it would be based on that. Bollinger says of that number, completeness of order marking the entire round of anything is, therefore, the ever-present signification of the number 10. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. These men were, verse 29 continues, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. All fat and all man valor and no escaped man. Of this, Ellicott astonishingly says, the word being the same as that used in Judges 3.17 to describe the fatness of Eglon. It's only a few verses earlier, and yet he didn't check to confirm this. It's a good lesson that I've had to learn myself. Never trust anything you read, even from the greatest of scholars, until you have checked it out first. As for the word in verse 317, bari, or fat, it ultimately comes from a word meaning to feed. In this verse, it is the adjective shamen, coming from the verb shamen, to grow fat and certainly signifying robust. They were well-fed and brave fighters, and yet they all perished at the hand of Israel. Despite it being a different word, Stanley is close to the intent of the verbiage, saying, The narrative ends as it had begun, with its half-humorous allusion to the well-fed carcasses of those who, corpulent like their chief, lay dead along the shore of the river. Other than calling them corpulent, the idea is correct. Eglon was overfed, and his men were well-fed, all from the labors of Israel. And yet, Israel defeated them while probably in a state of lacking their own bread. Verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. Vatikana Moab bayom hahu tachat yad Yisrael. And humbled Moab in the day the it under hand Israel. This does not mean that Moab became subject to Israel. Otherwise, it would be indicated, such as in 2 Samuel, where it says this. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. It simply means that they were humbled and licked their wounds in their own land. Understanding this, it next says, verse 30 continues, And the land had rest for 80 years. And reposed the land 80 years. The word shakat comes from an unused root, meaning to repose. Late Hebrew gives the idea of sinking down. One can think of lying in a hammock and looking around without fear, maybe slumbering a bit in the process. This does not necessarily mean that all of Israel was in this state, but the area where the judge ruled. As was noted in the introductory comments to judges, there must be overlaps in the times of various judges based on the number of years stated by Paul in Acts 13.20. As for the duration, 80 is the product of 8 and 10. 8 or shmone comes from shamen, the verb just described, meaning to grow fat. 
Thus, it is the superabundant number and the number of new beginnings. The meaning of 10 has already been described. With this state of ease noted, it next says, verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anat. Ve'acharav haya Shamgar ben Anat. And after him was Shamgar, son Anat. The derivation of the name Shamgar is uncertain. However, some see it as a reversal of the name of Moses' son, Gershom. If so, then it would be from the words Sham, meaning there, or Shem, meaning name, and stranger. Hence, there a stranger or name called a stranger. It could be named a stranger or called a stranger, in other words. Shamgar is also mentioned in Judges 5, verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. He is noted as the son of Anat. That name comes from Ana, a word having four distinct meanings, to answer or respond, be occupied with, to afflict, oppress, or humble, or to sing. Thus, it can mean answer, business, affliction, or singing. The typology here points to affliction. Of him, it says, verse 31 continues, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. Vayak et plishtim sheshmeot ish bemalmad habakar. And struck Philistines 600 men in goad the ox. The word malmad is found only here. It comes from lamad, to teach or learn. The idea is that when one goads an ox, he will learn from it. The ox, or bakar, comes from the verb bakar, to inquire or seek. The connection is that as the ox is used for plowing, the ground is opened up, revealing what is beneath, hence seek. Barnes describes the ox goad saying, It is an instrument of wood, about eight feet long, armed with an iron spike or point at one end, with which to spur the ox at plow, and with an iron scraper at the other end, with which to detach the earth from the plowshare when it became encumbered with it. The idea of teaching a bull or heifer is seen elsewhere, such as in Hosea 10, verse 11. Ephraim is a trained Lamad heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. There are varying degrees of skepticism in regard to the claim concerning Shamgar's success. Obviously, people love to tear apart the Bible, and they'll say something like, he didn't do it alone, but with others in a battle. However, being the leader, it was all credited to him. Such an explanation is hard to justify when we just got done with an account that explicitly included the efforts of others. There's nothing to say that he did this in one battle. Note what it says in 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. There it says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Jashub Bashhebet, the Takmonite chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. First, this guy was a captain, implying that he had men under him. Also, it says that he killed 800 at one time. This may be the case with Shamgar, or it may be that he single-handedly killed 600 in a series of encounters with the Philistines. Of the number, it is derived from 6 and 10. Bullinger defines 6 saying, it has to do with man. It is the number of imperfection, the human number, the number of man as destitute of God, without God, without Christ. Simply stated, it speaks of fallen man. Again, the meaning of 10 was already noted. The name Philistine comes from palash, signifying to roll in the dust as an act of mourning. It can take on several meanings, including grievers, burrowers, or weakeners. Verse 31 finishes with, and he also delivered Israel. There's an emphasis in the words, but Yosha gam hu et Yisrael, and saved also he Israel. This emphasis seems to indicate that it was around the same time as Ehud. While Ehud was delivering those on the eastern side of the land, it appears that Shamgard was delivering on the western side. What is this intriguing passage telling us? Why do you suppose the Lord has given such minute detail about things that are almost embarrassing for us to read and consider? Well, let's find out. A place where atonement is made where sins are covered and taken away, 
What a glorious, marvelous trade, when through grace we were cleansed. Oh, what a day. The law is satisfied and we have atonement. The guilt of our deeds is taken away. What Christ has done, such a marvelous event. We are free from our guilt. Oh, what a day. Thank you, O oh God, for Jesus Christ, our Lord. He accomplished it all. Our guilt is taken away. Through him, the victory is scored. Truly, what a marvelous, glorious day. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. The focus of the passage is Israel doing evil in the eyes of Jehovah. Because of that, the Lord placed them under subjection to Eglon, king of Moab. Evil comes about from violating God's law. Eglon, heifer-like, stands as a type of violation of the law. The first noted transgression of the law is found in Exodus 32, when Aaron made the golden calf, the Egel, where his name comes from. Thus it stands as representative of all future violations of the law, as typified by Eglon, transgression of the law. King from father, the power of the devil. In other words, he is typifying transgressions of the law. He is from Moab, meaning from father, meaning the power of the devil. The devil is using the power of the law against the people. Everybody got that? Okay. Here it says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus is identifying transgression of the law as being under the devil, he, of your father, the devil. So that is what Eglon is typifying right now. That power is strengthened against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12, to bolster his strength, Eglon, meaning transgression of the law, gathered a people and the people who rang off. It signifies those without and those within who are attempting to overthrow God's purposes, meaning those without the law of Moses and those who abuse the law of Moses. Together, they went and struck Israel and took possession of city the palms, meaning city the upright ones. The purpose of the law is to bring about righteousness. It is taken over by transgressions of the law. In other words, it is showing us that by law is the knowledge of sin, but that law cannot justify anyone, Romans 3.20. Instead, Israel served Eglon, transgression of the law. Read the Old Testament and you'll know that's true. They served transgression of the law, and it says here, 18 years. No matter which way 18 is divided, there is the sense that man is not under the Lord, but under transgression. Two, and thus under judgment. Nine, and that is for a divinely perfect period of time. Three, where he remains fallen and destitute of God. Six, so whether you go two and nine or three and six, it doesn't make any difference. It pictures Israel or anybody else in that state. This is seen in the words of Paul from Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. However, in their state of subjection, represented by the words, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud. He anticipates Christ. He is described as Ehud son Gera, son the right man bound hand his right. He's left-handed, he's bound in his right, okay? Depending on the root, Ehud means either one who praises or united. Either can point to the Lord. He praises God, for example, in Psalm twenty-two twenty-five. He is united to God in the incarnation. Because of this, there's no need to be dogmatic about which root his name came from. Sangera, among other things, means son of sojourning. A son in scripture often simply indicates one who has a particular attribute. A son of a fool is a fool. You say, oh, you're a son of a fool. That simply means you're a fool. Jesus came and sojourned among us. Thus, he is a son of sojourning. Benjamite or Ben-Hai-Mini, son of the right, is an exact description of Jesus in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. As it says, hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Everything is pointing to Christ so far. 
saying he is bound in his right hand would signify his state in the incarnation, where he set aside his power and authority, signified by the right hand. That's the side of power and authority. It says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He's bound in his power. He's bound in his right hand. He is left-handed. It is Ehud by whom Israel sent an offering, a mincha, in his hand to Eglon, king of Moab. It points to Jesus. He is the true offering. As it says in Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering, mincha, you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is written within my heart. Think of him, the mincha, the offering from God. He is bound in his right hand, meaning Christ in his incarnation, and it is in his hand, meaning Ehud's left and weaker hand, that the mincha is presented, his incarnation, his humanity. It points to Christ in his lowly state. And so, what does he do? And made to him Ehud sword. As has been seen many times, the word sword, cherev, is a picture of the law given at Horeb. They are spelled the same in the Hebrew, chet, resh, bet. And to confirm the symbolism, this is said to be a two-edged sword, another description of the word of God. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Why the unique word gomed, the length of the sword, was provided is hard to say. My best guess for you would be that it shows the closeness and intimacy of Christ with the law. In other words, remember it was a short sword, very short, and you had to keep it close, symbolized by the other use of it, which is in Ezekiel, where they were called gamadin. And I said that means they were close-in warriors, okay? Christ was a close-in warrior, being closely associated with the law. Next, it was noted that it was girded on his thigh. That is anticipated in the Psalms when referring to the coming Messiah. It says in Psalm 45, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. Next, it noted that Ehud brought the tribute, the mincha, to Eglon, king of Moab. That symbolism has already been explained. It then noted his extremely corpulent nature. Now think of it, before I even explain it, just think of what that symbolizes. You've got this giant man known as transgression of the law. Think of Israel, all the transgression of the law throughout their history. He's picturing what's going on, right? As Eglon represents transgression of the law, the symbolism becomes perfectly obvious. Transgression abounds in a superlative way because of law. Adam had one law and he transgressed. Throw on 613 others in the law of Moses, and you've got this giant entity weighing over the people of Israel, okay? It literally feeds the word bari off the law. That is stated by Paul in Romans 7 and Galatians 3, noting that Ehud sent those who brought the tribute away, accompanied by the emphatic, and he turned back is a way of saying that Christ alone would accomplish what was necessary to end transgressions of the law. He did it all by himself. This turning was from the carved images which by the Gilgal. It's hard to be dogmatic about what this is saying, but the Gilgal has repeatedly signified the liberty. Therefore, it seems that it is indicating the closeness of idolatry to finding liberty. It is almost an impossible task that only Christ could accomplish. He turned back from the entourage with a secret message for the king. In bringing it, the attendants were excused. It is a face-off between the two alone, Christ and the power of transgression of the law. Ehud approached, Jesus approached. The message is from God. Eglon arose from his throne. Transgression of the law arose from its position of power. 
No sooner did Eglon arise than Ehud reached with his left hand, his covered hand, his humanity, the left hand picturing Christ in his humanity, covering his deity. He took the sword, the law, from his right thigh, the side of strength and power, and the base upon which he stands, meaning the thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The belly is what feeds the body as food is processed. The entire sword, the full weight and complete law, went into Eglon, which is transgression of the law. In other words, it is a picture of the complete atonement of transgressions of the law. It represents the full, final, finished, and forever satisfaction of the law through Christ's work. The sword went in, the fat covered it over, and he did not draw the sword out of the belly. It is finished. The law is done. Next, the highly complicated words of verse 22 and 23 were stated. The actual meaning of those words is obscure, and several possibilities were given. They can be summed up with the thought, the sword came out of Eglon's Parshtona, meanwhile Ehud went out of Eglon's Mistrona. The law came out of transgression of the law in a way that it was distinct and in the place where it divides, destroying its ability to do so. Meanwhile, Jesus came out of the arrangement of transgression of the law. He's no longer under law. He has killed the law. He has come out of that way, meaning living under the law with the possibility of violating it as Adam did. Even if we don't know what the Hebrew literally says, and we talked about five different options and nobody knows which one is correct or another one, we can know what it typologically means. It is the marvel of God's word. From there, the doors of the loft were closed and locked. It emphatically said, and he went out. It speaks of the total victory of Christ over the power of the law. Despite that, and as evidenced by the servants going to the room, waiting for Eglon to come out, and finally going in to discover him dead on the floor, this doesn't mean that the law cannot still hold sway over others who have not come to Christ. Hence, it said that Ehud escaped and passed through the carved images, signifying Christ's total victory over them and escape to the Se'erat, the hairy. It signifies Christ making the awareness of sin. As I said, hair signifies awareness, especially awareness of sin available to all. In his arrival, Ehud blew the trumpet in Mount Ephraim to gather the people. Saying this was in the mount, the har points to the effects of his work, the mountain being synonymous with a large but centralized group of people. It refers to the uniting of all believers in Christ. Noting the name Ephraim adds further meaning. Ephraim means twice fruitful. It signifies that Christ's work has produced fruit in the conversion of both Jews and Gentiles. The secondary meaning of ashes speaks of the price he paid to make this possible, which was the afflictions that he endured. Being gathered, Ehud, Jesus, implored those with him to pursue after him because Jehovah gave their enemies, Moab, into their hand. God in Christ has given power over the law, the enemies from Father into our hand through the work of Jesus. In other words, if you believe the devil is defeated because of Christ, that's what that means. It next said that Israel went down and seized the fords of the Jordan, picturing Christ the descender, leading to Moab, meaning from father. None could cross over. There is the law and there is grace, and there is no crossing between the two. Galatians 5.3, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Finally, verse 29 noted that 10,000 men of Moab were struck and not one escaped. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, and that the whole cycle is complete. For those who come to God through the grace found in Christ, every single foe, the entire law without exception, is defeated. The use of the word bari in relation to eglon and shamen in relation to the soldiers, both translated as fat, is purposeful. A point is being made. Transgression of the law feeds on the law as its source of sustenance, as in Romans 3.20. However, transgressions of the law increase guilt before God, as in Romans 3.19. From there, it then said that Moab, 
from father was humbled under the hand of Israel. The law which allows the devil to have power was humbled, and Christ the Lord is exalted. The final note of there being 80 years, it's a nice touch. As eight is derived from the same word that was described as fat, shamen, it speaks of the superabundant nature, eight, of the victory, and that the entire cycle is complete in what Christ has done. Everything Christ has done is superabundant, it is fantastic, it is marvelous, and it is done. With the exploits of Ehud complete, the narrative turned to Shamgar, the son of Anat. He is a quick picture of Jesus Christ. They're a stranger, son of affliction. Both look to Jesus, a stranger come to dwell among us and one who identifies with affliction. Killing the Philistines, the weakeners with an ox goad, looks to the victory that comes from pursuing the knowledge of Christ, which is obtained through the word that tells us of him. The ox, as noted, comes from a root signifying to inquire or seek. The goad comes from a root signifying to teach. Thus, the Philistines, those who weaken others spiritually, are destroyed through diligent search and proper instruction. It's everybody seeing what's going on. Christ defeats the law, but we are still living in this world. I come to Jesus. I am free from the law. I am completely free from the transgressions that can condemn me again. But there are people out there telling me, you need to observe the Sabbath. You need to do this. You need to do, stop eating pork. And they're trying to put you back under that. And Shamgar coming right after uh, Ehud is showing us the process. We get saved. Now we have to live in that salvation. Come on, people. Get ready. Do your job and become great citizens of Christ by knowing your Bible. I know that almost sounded charismatic, but learn the Bible. Learn what it's telling you, and that is what Shamgar is telling us right there. The whole cycle is complete. Nothing is wanting. We have been given the word of instruction. It is available for those who inquire of it, and it is fully capable of eliminating the power of those who would attempt to weaken them. The last words of the chapter said, and saved also he, Israel. As noted then, it seems to mean that he was a judge at the same time as Ehud. Christ destroyed transgressions of the law by using the law. He continues to separate those who rely on the law for their justification, and he has saved Israel through the instruction that he has provided in his word, all pictured by Shamgar. Chapter 3 of Judges has continued the typological pictures of Christ and the magnificent things that he has done for us. Eglon, transgression of law, isn't something ethereal that we can only hypothesize about. It is exactly what Paul describes in the books of Romans and Galatians and elsewhere. By law is the knowledge of sin, and by law man becomes guilty before God. In giving more law, more transgression occurs. But all of what he has done has been a lesson for us if we are willing to pay heed. He has used a real group of people with serious issues of rebellion to show us exactly what is wrong with each one of us. The story of Israel is simply a microcosm of the greater story of humanity. God is using them to tell us what is wrong, how he will fix it, and how desperately we need him to do so. Pay heed to the lesson of the law. It keeps being reintroduced story after story to get us to wake up. Jesus, we need Jesus. Without him, there's no hope, and with him, there is absolute hope and no uncertainty at all. This is what we are again shown in this wonderful passage from God's superior word. Everybody see the typology? Did anybody not get it? If you don't, go back and read the sermon 10 or 12 times. You'll have it down. No problem. It's just marvelous. All you have to do is think of why would he choose a big guy to represent something? You know, he's a big guy. What does it matter? He's skinny as a bone. He's big. It doesn't make any difference unless he is telling us something. And he's trying to tell us the absolute enormity of the weight of the law that rests upon the people of the world. Just one law was broken. And every single person on this planet stands condemned. One law. And now I'm going to show you what trying to observe my law will do. How absolutely holy I am. How magnificent I am. And it's not to say how bad we are. 
It's to show how glorious he is and how graceful and merciful he is because he says, I am going to do it alone. I am going to come in human flesh. I'm going to cover my deity. My humanity is going to cover it, left hand, and I'm going to do it for you. So what does that show us? Not only is he magnificent, he's gracious and he's merciful, but he's loving. He loves the people of the world enough to say, I will take this burden upon myself. I'm going to enter into the stream of humanity and I am going to suffer for you. If you have never received this today, I would beg you to consider it. It's all shown us here in typology. You can't change it. It's written. It's been there all along. And God is giving us this wonderful story to show us these things. More pictures are coming up right in order. I told you that last week. Totally surprised at what I had seen when I got to Judges 5. And I said, wait, this is all showing us a picture of redemptive history. So now we know what Ehud and Eglon are. We know what Shamgar is. So what is the logical next step in Judges chapter 4? Deborah. What is she picturing? It's showing us something. And then after that, we come to a guy named Gideon. Man, I love Judges 6. I've been waiting to get into that forever. I started typing it two weeks ago. I typed another passage last week. And by the end of it, I was so excited. My heart was racing at what God is showing us in his word. He's showing us Jesus and the glory of what God will do for you if you will simply believe the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. Believe that and you will appropriate what you have seen in typology today. Great stuff. Closing verse, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Think of it. That's what the law does. Think of the laws in the United States of America. You're guilty before you get up in the morning. Simply by breathing, you're guilty of something. That's we're set up for failure. That's what the law does. From Father, the devil has been using that against us now for 6,000 years. But Jesus defeated it, if you'll accept it. I feel so bad. I keep getting these emails from people every single week. You need to do this, and you're not teaching properly. They're eating pork, and they're going to die. And What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Christ did that. Why would you set aside that type of grace that he would do for you? Why would you do that? So you can prove you're good before God? Good luck. Thank you for that quote. I didn't know I said that on Thursday. That was, that was sweet. Thank you. Next week is Judges 4, 1 through 16. Hoorah! A great story to tell until it is done. It's entitled Deborah, Judge of Israel. Part one. Thank you, Jay. And that'll be our 11th judge's sermon. Good stuff. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. The through you part is Shamgar, okay? If you don't know your Bible, he can't do great things through you. He can't do it. You're just a ship on the ocean being tossed around. You may do something great. You may not. I mean, it's unlikely you will if you don't know what to do. Shamgar, he'll do great things through you. Learn your word, please. I got a question. I won't lie to you on this. I forgot your uh, thing this week that you gave me, and so I had to make one up five minutes before people started showing up. And uh, I think somebody can get this, but if they do, I'm going to give them like a 9 out of 10 on the theology scale. In Jeremiah 24, he is shown two baskets of figs. What do they represent? Somebody must have read Jeremiah in the past month. Come on. Okay, I'm going to tell you, I'm sorry, because you would have gotten a thing of apple butter. It doesn't matter. To, he's being quiet because he got one already, and so he doesn't have to say anything. But, um, all right, apple butter. Man, this is good. Okay, it is the good, the good figs are exiles to Babylon. If you go to Babylon, you will prosper, and you will be brought back to Israel. If you refuse the bad people, or if you go down to Egypt, you're a bad fig. Your time is done. That's 
the general idea. But you'll never forget that again because it's such a beautiful passage. Two baskets of figs. And the Lord is using metaphor, typology, all of these things to get us to learn something. God says, you're going to be exiled. You've disobeyed me. And the people say, I want to stay. I want to earn my own salvation. I want to be under the law. And he says, it's not going to work. You go off to Babylon, take your punishment, and you'll be fine, and I'll bring you home. My grace will save you. They don't want the grace. It's just a picture of what we're seeing here, just kind of a a typological representative of what we saw today. You can't do it, folks. You can't buck God, but God will take care of you. This is entitled Ehud, Judge of Israel, Part 2. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, as the account reads, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably in the cool chamber, attending to his needs. So they awaited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master, fallen dead on the floor, a scene of doom. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, hurrah, and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Seirah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. A great day, it would seem. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. So it was planned. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. Hurrah and cheers. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who had a great story to tell. He killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story about a person that was willing to take on the law, all of it, and to defeat it for others. Thank you that he did it alone. And this person is Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for that, Lord. It is so glorious. Every time we come to your word, there's something marvelous to find. There's treasure to be seen. There's glory that is revealed to our eyes. Just as when Paul was on the road to Damascus and the gleaming light came around him and revealed the glory of God, so is the glory when we open your word and look into it and see what you have done for the people of the world. Thank you for this precious word. Thank you. Thank you for what Jesus has done. And we pray this in his beautiful name. Amen. Does everybody like the story of Ehud and Eglon now? I mean, it was hard last week. It was embarrassing. Some of the things they say just are against our sensibilities. But when you think of what it's picturing, how glorious. Thank you, oh God.